Hey Sweep the Leg listeners, this is Andrew, your official, unofficial guest host. As you can tell, the episode's going to be a little different than usual. Masunas had to step away from the podcast for a couple weeks, so I thought it'd be a good time to take over or fill in, however you'd like to describe it. And I'm going to review the second-to-last Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Uh, I thought it'd be a good time to do so, since Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 comes out in a month from now, from when I record, and being one of WB's tentpole movies and one of the top-grossing movie franchises in history, I thought Deathly Hallows Part 1 deserved a review. And Masunas isn't a fan of the Harry Potter series as I am, so it kind of worked out that I was available to do this and get my thoughts out to you guys. So I hope you enjoy. So there's a spoiler alert. I do not go into movie two spoilers, but there are tidbits from the book. And the first part of the first movie that I'll be going to talk about. So just be aware, guys. I want to let you know before I really go into anything in depth. So Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 1 starts out with one of my favorite scenes. It's uh, the Malfoy Mansion dinner party. really enjoy this entire scene because we have the good guys rally together many times in each movie. So it was really cool to see characters like Snape, uh, the Malfoys, Voldemort, Bellatrix, and others like Pius Thickness, who's the soon-to-be minister that Voldemort is placing, uh, gathering into one place discussing how to kill Harry Potter. I didn't know how they would approach the scene with Voldemort uh, doing the Avada Kedavra on the Muggle Studies teacher, Professor Burbage. Uh, I have to to say that it was what I imagined in my head, and it was pretty harsh both in my head and on screen. It sets up uh, that the book and that the story is basically going for broke and that people will die. Even innocent women hanging in the air defenseless, begging for mercy. So that was pretty cool. The other thing that it set up, which I'm a fan of, but not a fan of at the same time, is the dark colors. Uh, these past few films have been a fan of these really dark shades of black and blue and green. Uh, it does a good job setting up the ominous tone, but at the same time it's kind of hard to make out things that are in certain scenes later in the movie. But I still enjoy the mature nature that it gives the film. But I just wish there was a limit to how dark you could make the, the scenes in the movie. I think they little, went a little overboard in some sometimes uh, as much as I did enjoy it in others. Another thing that I'm uh, both a fan of but not at the same time are a few s- are the scenes that they excluded from this movie. Um, I've been known to complain about things myself from that the movies have taken out from the books but in the end I do know that there are time constraints, there are budgetary constraints and just scenes that plain out won't work for a movie on screen. So I do know that there are reasons that they do take things out. Uh, they do, they did seem to do a lot less excluding in this movie, and I would have expected that since it was being split. Uh, but having said that, they did take out one of my favorite scenes in all the books, which I will get into in depth in a little bit. Uh, one thing that was taken out that seemed a little unnecessary to me was the announcement of Lupin and Tonks' pregnancy. I don't know why that wasn't included. They cut off Tonks when she was going to tell Harry at number four Privet Drive, and... I thought that could have been added without any consequence to the film. I, I won't go into why the pregnancy is important right now because because it co- eventually comes back in movie two, and I don't want to do any spoilers for movie two. But uh, I did I did wish they uh, had put that in. I did like the nods to the book scenes that they left out though from other books, such as Ron saying I knew she was lying about the tattoo when he was changing into Harry due to the Polyjuice potion. 
that's an odd to one of the scenes in Half-Blood Prince uh, right after Harry and Ginny get together and she's teasing saying that Harry had a tattoo which I thought that was pretty funny that they added that uh, going into a scene that they added for the movie I thought the chase scene with the Death Eaters going after the Order and Harry was really brilliant I really enjoyed the suspense, and I liked how they added that ground chase with Hagrid, and he, how he couldn't get the uh, how he couldn't get Sirius's motorcycle off the ground. For me, it brought a sense of how the real world is clashing with the magical. The graphics in all of the movie, but particularly in this one, were done really well. Other than the little hokey part where Harry's holding onto the bike upside down and running on the roof of a truck, uh, otherwise I didn't really think it was overdone. Uh, for some reason. They have had the Death Eaters since movie 5 be able to fly. Meanwhile, it should really only be Voldemort that does that, which makes them more terrifying to the trio in the books. But even watching that, as they fought in the sky with all the Order and and the uh, Double Harrys, I was really fine with it. I thought it, I thought it worked well. Um, I hope they do talk about Harry's wand and how it acted on its own with Ollivander in the second part movie. Because in the book, it's something that Harry thinks about often, and it definitely solidifies his connection with the wand and Voldemort even more. And they they showed a great scene with the the amplified red and green spells clashing, and how we went into it, and we saw Voldemort's wand crack. I thought that was a great scene. So I hope they do divulge that a little bit more as they do in the book. Uh, another scene that was cut for time and continuity was the ending of the Will of Dumbledore. In the books, we get a more established look at Rufus Scrimgeour. While the movie doesn't really get into his character, not even introducing him until this part one movie, when he was usually when he was really debuted in book six. So I understand why they didn't emphasize the disconnect between Harry and Scrimgeour. But I love in the book when Harry's basically calling out the government for being the same generation after generation, trying to figure out things other than actually taking action against the darkness out in the world. And Scrimgeour can't believe that Harry is still Dumbledore's man through and through as he says and he burns a hole in harry's shirt uh they ended the will scene in the movie with scrimgeour saying to harry that he can't win and voldemort is too strong i understood this cut uh i think it was a good translation from the book to the from the book to the film and it was just one of those times where the book just expands what the movie gives and to read the book would just be a better view of the psyches of these characters uh, coming into the wedding scene, I was glad to see they didn't use Polyjuice Potion of a Muggle Boy from town over and have Harry be Barry the Random Weasley, as I always called him. Uh, there wasn't any time for Dan Radcliffe not to portray Harry, especially in a scene so important. Uh, Harry comes into contact with Auntie Muriel of the Weasley family, and I thought this actress portraying her was excellent. Uh, she was the older, obnoxious, but kind of correct uh, lady that I thought we'd see and I hoped we'd see and that's what I got in my head and she was pretty much an exact picture of what I had imagined. Um, they did not however give us any clarity on Dumbledore's past which I was hoping for when Harry spoke to Elpheus Doge. We do have a whole part two movie to get through so I'm really hoping they divulge a lot of Dumbledore's history. I'm hoping they divulge all of Dumbledore's history because um, it's either going to be now or never. And that's one of the underlying s stories in the back of the main story that I really love. It's it's really important that they get that out there, and I'm really hoping they do it justice. Um, what comes next is perhaps my second favorite scene in the series. Out of nowhere, a white lynx appears on the dance floor, and from its aura, Kingsley Shacklebolt, uh, 
Kingsley Shacklevoy out of nowhere, a white lynx appears on the dance floor, and from its aura, Kingsley Shacklebolt's voice announces, The ministry has fallen, Scrimgeour is dead, they are coming. I remember reading that and getting full body chills. It transitions the movie from passive-aggressive to just full-on war mode. Uh, the power of these three sentences was huge. I remember thinking about how big the ministry was set up to be in these books, and how the magical community relies on it so much, and even Harry's protections are mainly from the ministry, added with the order. And to think that Scrimgeour, who was always looking at the opposite side of the fight uh, than Harry, but was still on the same side, had been killed, it was a big moment. Uh, I thought the impact was the same in the movie. They just changed the visual to be a sphere of running people instead of a lynx. I don't quite understand why they chose to do this, because either way, in the lynx form or the orb form, we still had Kingsley's voice. So either you knew who it was or you didn't know who it was. Um... They repeated the They Are Coming line, uh, which I was fine with, but this scene is always going to be its definitely one of my favorites in the books and the movies. Just the change from the links to that floating orb with people running around kind of is one of my little nitpicks, but that's always going to be something I'll have being a diehard fan, so nothing crazy important. Uh, as much as I want to touch on every scene, I want to keep this podcast moving, so I'm going to skip ahead and go to my favorite chapter in any of the Harry Potter books. Um, it's something they touched on in the movies but did not emphasize. Uh, so, in the books, Harry wanders around 12 Grim Old Place after they find a place to hide. Um, he's feeling alone. He sees Hermione, Hermione and Ron must have fallen asleep holding hands. Uh, he finds Sirius's room, and this is a great moment because we see the younger Sirius that Harry really never got to know. He's only known, he basically only knew Sirius for book three, four, and five, so he's only known him for a little over two years, which is really sad. Um, he, but in the room, he finds a picture that's cut in half, and it's him on a toy, on a toy broom, and it's gliding around. And there's a note to, from his mom, Lily, too serious about how Harry loves his gift and how the family's getting cabin fever being under protection. Um, she says that Wormtail's been over, and Harry knows that. And Harry and the audience both know that Wormtail betrayed him, betrayed the, uh, the Potter family. So that's a little stab in the heart. Uh, the note is torn, so he doesn't really get to read the whole thing, but... I like how in the book he cherishes it because uh, I remember reading that he, like, feeling the ink that was on the paper was the ink that his mom put on. And it just makes her feel like she was more alive and she actually was on this earth because she, he never got to know her. Uh, it's a really touching scene in the book. Um, this was never put in the movie, and I was slightly disappointed they couldn't take three minutes to add this. But they had to keep things moving, and uh, the next part of this chapter that they did add in the movie was the trigger was the trio figuring out that R.A.B. is Sirius's brother who was a Death Eater and in his room they remember cleaning out a locket in book 5 which was a real horcrux of course they never cleaned the house in movie 5 so this had to be assumed as the truth that R.A.B. is Regulus Arcturus Black in the movie um, creature appears, and this is my favorite scene in the whole book. Uh, not only in the chapter, but the whole book. Harry yells, Harry's yelling at creature, trying to tell him, telling him to divulge what he knows about Regulus and the locket. 
uh, creatures like crying and he's trying to tell him a tale about how Regulus was doing what he thought was right. The Black family always had the same morals as Voldemort, but they were just too afraid to stick their necks out and do anything uh, until Regulus signed up. Sirius always assumed that he was killed in the line of duty. I think that was mentioned in movie three. Uh, definitely was mentioned in the books. Creature tells us that Regulus found out that he was in over his head, and he didn't really agree with everything Voldemort was trying to do, and he tried to actually take him down. He discovered that the Horcrux um, existed, and he sacrificed himself on the island in the cave that Harry and Dumbledore got the locket from, and him and Creature were on the island in the middle of the cave, and they had to... and. Um, Regulus basically sacrificed himself so Creature could survive and break the locket and destroy one of the Horcruxes. Um, Regulus was obviously, he must have been pulled down by the Inferi that were underneath the water that we saw in movie and book six. Um, and Creature in the present says that he can en he never ended up breaking the locket and he just breaks down and Hermone, Hermione shouts at Harry how Creature is just basically a slave to this world of wizards and house elves uh he can't help being how he is and it's just cruel that this is the way things are and harry realizes that house elves are mistreated uh from this whole story that creatures told and how hermione and her idea for liberating them in book five which never made it to the screen uh could have been the right thing to do creature is a reflection of his masters uh not only a reflection of himself uh, he just does whatever he's told to do, and that's the way he was brought up. I absolutely love this chapter, as you can probably tell from my, my rambling. Um, but this is one of my favorite scenes, and I just wish they could have done maybe a flashback if Creature had narrated this scene in the movie. It would have been really excellent, but it didn't happen, though. So, in the end, this is uh, the reason that we have the books as well as the movies. So the next thing I want to jump ahead to is the just the acting of this movie. I thought it was really well done with the uh, especially with the trio. We have Emma Watson portraying Hermione. Hermione, I keep saying Hermione. So it's always been one thing I've said since I was a kid when I've read these books. I've always called Hermione Hermione Hermione. So excuse me if I make that error a couple times. But Emma Watson's portraying Hermione. Um, I think she does a really good job. I think she has a solid performance. Uh, she's been, I think she's, I don't, I think she's been, uh, I think she's done a great job for the last, for all the movies, but I think she's uh, finally leveled out and she's found out where to be to keep a steady, constant, really good, uh, really good acting, acting job. Um, Dan Radcliffe is always a solid, he does what he does uh, he acts really well. Uh, I think you could definitely tell in the last few movies that he's gotten more experience doing other things. Because um, now he has, a, I think you could tell in these movies, in, in the Harry Potter movies, that he has more range than he used to. So I enjoyed that. And I think Rupert Grint has really stepped up. Um, I enjoyed him in movie 6. And I think there is a big leap from movie 6 to this first part of movie 7. I think he's definitely matured a lot. And uh, not only the character, but Rupert Grint, um, he looked a little bigger in stature physically. And I think the way he just acts is a lot better than he used to. He's more, he looks a little looser, uh, a little, little looser. And he's just, he has more emotion than he used to when he acts. And I really enjoyed his role in this movie. I think he did a good job. I just want to touch on one of the scenes when the, when 
Hermione and Harry are at the gravesite. I thought that was a really great scene. Uh, I thought it was well done. It matched up with the book. Um, in the books, you can obviously hear Harry's thoughts through the narrator, and it talks about how Harry is looking at his parents' graves, and he just wishes that he could crawl underneath and just lay with them and be close to them. They were so close. How he was really cold and how it would have been so much nicer to be with them at a time like this. I think that was it's one of the best uh, scenes in the in the book. And I think it was really translated well to the screen. I thought that Dan Radcliffe and Emma Watson did a good job portraying this emotion in the scene. And they didn't even really use any words. They're just the, the way they looked at the graves and the way they acted just came across really well. Um, I want to jump to the scene where uh, Ron returns after their big blowout in the forest. And just I thought it was an excellent way to portray the Horcrux that came out of the locket. Um, I didn't know how they would how they would visually put this on screen and I really liked that it was this slimy but still solid black essence that just comes out of the locket and it's huge and it's grand and it's uh, over the over the top but in a good way and it's just overwhelming and Ron falls backwards, Harry's behind it screaming to Ron to to use the sword that they just recovered from the wood from the bottom of the ice pond and I really enjoyed how they had the Harry and Hermione come out of the locket and Voldemort's trying to use Ron's fears against him and he makes this like super perfect uh, it, they kind of look like wax people um, versions of Harry and Hermione and they start kissing and it's like it's really, it's kind of awkward, but that's the point. A lot of people don't care for it because they said it doesn't look passionate enough, but I think it's not supposed to be really passionate. It's supposed to be, like, really fierce, and they're, like, it's just, it makes everything more awkward and intense, and I thought they did a really good job with that scene, and once again, Rupert Grint does a great job portraying that anger, and instead of being scared, Ron just gets angry, and it. I think the Horcrux just went a little too far, and instead of frightening him, he's, uh, he got Ron to seek revenge on it, and they destroy the Horcrux. I thought that was a great scene. Uh, and then going from that one, uh, jumping to the animation scene, which is one of the sleeper scenes in this movie that I didn't see coming. I didn't know how they would do it. I didn't know if they would actually uh, say the entire tale of the three brothers uh, when they visit Xenophilius Lovegood's house. But they did, and they had Emma Watson narrate it, which I thought was great. And they had this really cool animation scene. And it was like, it, I'm not too into animation movies, so I really can't compare it to anything else I've seen. Um, like Nightmare, and, uh, what's, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, I think that movie's called. Um, I'm not really into any of those, but this was so different and so juxtaposed from the rest of the film it just had a really good impact and i really enjoyed watching the the way the animation had like this blending effect and everything was very wispy and once again they got back to that magical feel which obviously is something that's uh definitely relevant to this movie and this books and the uh the series so i thought it was well done um it had this like dark yellow hue to it and it seemed very grim but at the same time it's it 
played out like a fairy tale like it is, and I really enjoyed watching that. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So we're winding down to the end of the movie, and um, of course I have to mention uh, the entire ending with Dobby and being in the Malfoy Mansion and how the trio is basically caught by the Snatchers. Um, this played out perfectly for me. I really enjoyed it at this point in the movie. I knew it's coming to a close, so I'm getting really excited to see what they're going to leave it on and how they're going to wrap this all up. And at the same time, I'm getting upset because I know that Dobby's going to die. And even though he hasn't really been a big presence in the movies, uh, he was in the books, so we still have that background. So if you've read the books, you know all about Dobby, and you've seen him in a few. You've seen him in movie. Um, he pops up in book four, and he pops up in book five. And it's sad to see that this character's coming to a close. Uh, in the movies, unfortunately, house elves are a very big budget uh, constraint, so they never had many scenes with house elves. They had Creature in movie five. Um, I believe in movie four during the tri during the Quidditch World Cup, they had a house elf on a camel, which is kind of weird. <laughs> I, I remember looking for it in one of the scenes, um, but I guess it's like a little Dobby cameo. I don't know what they were going for, but um, but yeah, they got rid of Winky, who was Barty Crouch's house elf, and she had a major role in book four, um, but they didn't add her because of the budget. Um, but you see the return to Dobby in, in this first part of movie 7. And I think they did him really well. Instead of using a puppet, he was very CGI until uh, until his final scene. Um, and I think it looked great. They He looked a little younger than he did in the fir in the in his first appearance in movie 2. Um, they got rid of some of the lines on him. Like I said, the CGI. So he's a little smoother looking. He, wor he moves a little better, a little smoother. And I just really enjoyed that. Like, I remember when he pops up in the basement of the Malfoy Mansion, everyone started cheering when he came up and he appeared. So that was great. Um, the one thing I... Uh, another one of those little nitpicks that I don't understand why they... They actually put this in the movie instead of leaving it out. Um, Wormtail, in the book, he comes downstairs to investigate Harry and Ron because they're making noise when... Dobby is popping in and out, saving uh, Dean Thomas and Ollivander and Griphook and Luna. But and in the in the book, Wormtail has his silver hand that he gets, and he gets that in the movie too, in movie four, um, by Voldemort. And in the book, he's supposed to start. He's choking Harry, but he starts to give in a little bit and let Harry go because he, in the end, he can't kill Harry. He owes them this life debt because Harry saved his life on in the third book when he s saves him from Lupin and Sirius. Um, and the hand is supposed to be this essence of Voldemort that won't allow Wormtail to screw up, and it chokes Wormtail because it goes against his own master and chokes Wormtail because he's starting to give in to Harry. Um, and he ends up dying by literally by his own hand. And I don't understand why they chose to just have Harry and Ron... Uh, zap Wormtail behind the back and knock him out. It didn't really make sense to me unless they're going to have something that he does in, movie, in part 2 of movie 7. But that was a little odd and I kind of felt a little off with that. I think all the, uh, I think that they should have just ended his character the way they did in the book. I don't see a reason for keeping him around. But that leads us back into Dobby. Uh, they get upstairs and 
they um, Dobby rescues Hermione from Bellatrix, and they get the wands. And uh, there's uh, there's a hidden, a little hidden thing that happens in this scene, but I won't divulge it in case you haven't read the books. But there's a very important part of this scene that happens, and it'll lead into movie two and uh, part two of movie seven that you'll definitely be aware of when the time comes. Um, but everything goes down. There's a little battle, and Dobby basically exclaims how he is. Uh, there to protect Harry Potter, and he'll always be there, and uh, then he basically disappears with the trio, and as they're disappearing, Bellatrix throws her a little knife that we've all known from the books, and it uh, spins into the vortex of Dobby that's spinning out from the uh, Malfoy Mansion, and of course Dobby is sacrificed, and another creature slash character is sacrificed for the sake of Harry Potter. Um, it's very upsetting in the book. I don't... It had the same effect in the movie, like just that there was no music, and you just see this little figure of Dobby that they... It looked like they did use uh, a puppet instead of CGI for this scene. Like I said before, it was CGI up until the last scene. And he just falls down to the ground, and Harry's looking around for help. And it's just really tragic, and I thought it was done really well. So we come up to the last scene, and unfortunately I can't go into every detail of this movie as I would like to, so I'm, uh, so I'm skipping to the end, and uh, this is when Voldemort finds Dumbledore's tomb after he gets the info from Grindelwald, and he knows that Dumbledore has the Elder Wand that we've learned is a Deathly Hallow from Xenophilius Lovegood's story. And he undoes the tomb, and it kind of looks like Tetris blocks to me, which is kind of odd, but I guess it works for the sake of the movie. I don't know how many times we're going to have to see it. So um, he undoes the tomb, and he comes face-to-face -face with the corpse of Dumbledore, and he basically rips out the Elder Wand from Dumbledore's dead grasp. And it's really creepy, and the music is starting to elevate, and Voldemort just looks at it, and he flings up lightning bolts into the sky. Um, I thought it was real well done. I thought the split was uh, perfectly placed. I think it gives this level of suspense and fear for the movie. It doesn't end with Harry. It ends with Voldemort, who looks like he's on his upswing, and now he has all the power. And I'm excited to see where they go for movie two and how they continue from that spot. Um... But yeah, that's about it, guys. I hope you enjoyed the review. Um, I guess out of five stars, I would definitely give this movie four and a half. Um, I don't think it was a perfect movie, but I think it was dang close, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was different than the others because it was, a, at the same time, it was really fast-paced and suspenseful. It had this slower pace when they were in the woods, but it was never it never really let up, and the mood was always dark and handled really well. So this wraps it up for my Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 review. Um, you can go to iTunes and leave reviews for us on the page. And the more reviews we get, the more prominent we'll become in on iTunes uh, during with the listings for podcasts. So if you could please do that, it would be great. Um, you can leave us an email at uh, sweepthelegpodcast at gmail.com. 
And you can visit us at sweepthelikepodcast.podbean.com. And you can find us on Facebook. And uh, just join in the fun. We have a we have a bunch of great listeners, and we have a lot of things in plan for the summer uh, to get you through all this TV hiatus and through all this crazy movie, all these crazy movie releases. Um, Shar Masunas has tons of plans because there's a lot of big fan films coming out. So with that, this has been Andrew. In the words of Potter Watch from the book, know your friends. Be on the lookout for any signs of the Imperious Curse or Polyjuice Potion. And with that, good luck, stay safe, and support Harry Potter.